When I came to chapter 5, there were so many ways to go, so many topics in chapter 5, but the Spirit literally drove me to verse 14 and 15, because I think this is where we're living as a church, and maybe this will spill over into your life, but this has a lot of meaning to me this morning. John says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. Almost seems redundant, those verses, right? Here's why I love these verses. Here's why the Spirit drove me here. It is a privilege. It's actually quite refreshing to hear John, this great apostle, talk about prayer. I shared in my opening, you know, this is, this is the man who was with Jesus for three years. This was a man who, was in the early, who saw the empty tomb. This is a man who saw the revelation, the end of all human history. This is the august apostle John who writes Gospel of John, the letters, the book of Revelation. And now he's going to write about prayer. When John speaks, I want to listen. I want to hear what he has to say. But, but here's the takeaway when you hear John talk about prayer. John knew Jesus after the flesh. One of only a few people, right? Like 12 he starts his letter by saying, that which our ears have heard, our eyes have gazed upon, that which we have touched concerning the word of life. He had a physical relationship with Jesus. Imagine having God for three years with you. Pretty cool, right? But then he had the experience that you and I live in, knowing God after the Spirit. For the majority of his life, God was absent. He wasn't physical. He wasn't absent, but he wasn't there physically. But John is going to say, we have this confidence. Here's what John knows. God is always there. It sounds flippant. It sounds trite, cliche. God is always with us. How does John know? He knew Jesus after the flesh. What does Jesus do after the resurrection? He pops in. Hey, guys, what's going on? He makes them breakfast on the shore. He's there. He's not there. He tells them things they said when, when he wasn't there. When Thomas said, unless I touch the nail-scarred hands, I'll never believe Next time he appears, he said, Thomas, little show and tell, right? What he was showing them is, even when I'm not there, I'm there. Remember what he said, I'll never forsake you or leave you. I will always be with you. And so John understands this now. And John in the early church was known as old camel knees. He prayed so much. And what he knows, and he knows that he knows, 39 times in this epistle, he writes the word, I know that I know that I know. Uh, he was counteracting the Gnostics. Gnosticism was all about higher knowledge. He goes, no, 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 we, we know. We don't know about God. We know God. It speaks of intimacy. Seven times, you, you got to catch this, seven times in two verses. Look, he says, we know that whatever we ask, if it's according to will, he hears us, and we know if he hears us, that whatever we ask, we know that we have our petitions. It's we, 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 not I, I, I. It's not I'm John, I have a hotline to God, let me teach you how to pray. He's like, no, from Adam to Abraham to the last apostle to the last believer before the rapture, that what the Bible teaches is you and I have access to a holy, wonderful, life-giving God. None of us are greater than the rest of us. We, all, we might have different functions, we all have the same value before God, we're all his children, and we have this access, Hebrews says, where we boldly can come in and, we can, and he hears us. We have this strong confidence. The word means trust. It's what every relationship's built on, right? Every relationship is built on, can I trust this person? And how do we know we can trust God? 
And remember, John was there one day where the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And why did they ask that? Because Jesus would leave real early in the morning before they get up, and he would go to a mountain to pray. And they saw a correlation between his prayer life and the activity in his life. It was palpable. It was something like, Lord, we know this is the key to your life. Can you teach us to pray like this? We've learned repetitive prayers. We've prayed like the Pharisees prayed. Lord, we see something here that's desirable. Would you teach us how to pray? And probably the greatest revelation Jesus ever gave to the human race was pray like this. Not a repetitive prayer. A rabbinical outline that starts with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He introduced God as a loving Father. Now, it was always in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, God said, I've raised children and they've rebelled against me, speaking of the nation of Israel. So it's always been there, but for the first time, Jesus embodied that. He revealed a Father who was full of grace and mercy and longs to meet with us, longs to be a part of our lives. This changes everything from duty to delight. The joy of knowing God, the joy of relationship, this makes prayer very natural in the life of a Christian. It's almost like breathing. It's, like, it's why Paul said you can pray without ceasing. It's not like you're on your hands and knees praying all day. It's like you can communicate with God all of the day. Prayer is that simple. It's talking to God. Now, for some reason, we complicated it, right? And I know why we complicated it, right? I was there and uh, still have flashbacks, right? We were all raised in some religion, some, some maybe a form of Christianity, and it was more about, let's take the posture of prayer, right? I gotta kneel, I gotta be prostrate, I gotta close my eyes, I gotta fold my hands. Now, those things are in the Bible, some of them, and it's okay, but not required, right? It's not the posture. Sometimes that shows reverence. We prayed repetitive prayers. I know I did, right? We had a list of five or six prayers. We never prayed out loud. Isn't that weird the first time you hear somebody pray out loud? The only out loud prayer we ever had was at dinner. Lord, bless this food and the bounty that we are about to receive. And I, It's the only time we ever prayed out loud. Um, some people pray creeds. There's a book of common prayer. Then there's real deep questions. Like, why do I pray if God already knows what I'm going to ask? You ever think that one? Somebody's laughing. They probably think that. Um, can I pray to Jesus or can I pray to the Holy Spirit? Is it just God? Some people pray to the uh, saints or Mary. Uh, you may have heard people pray in tongues or pray in the Spirit. Some people like formulas, like the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Contrition, Thanksgiving. Some people really wrote that way. Some people think, well, I'm unworthy to pray, and so I won't approach God. There, there's all these confusing things about prayer. So let me illustrate how confusing we've made it. Uh, there was a Father's Day one year, and my daughter Leah was a teenager, and she's not the greatest gift giver in our family. Like, she's wrapping gifts like 30 seconds before her birthday usually. And um, it's Father's Day, and I'm pulling out to go to Pastor Bob Banks' cabin, and she's running down my van saying, Dad, here's your Father's Day gift. And I'm like, gosh, this looked like it came from a back bin in a bad bookstore. Like, look, it's not even glossy. So I thought it was a joke, right? So I get up to Bob Banks' camp, and everybody's kind of chilling and all, and I pull this out of my bag, and it says, Stuff Christians Like. And she writes on the inside jacket, Hey, Dad, hope you find this as hilarious as I did, and maybe you'll use it in a sermon one day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 
So I'm like, what the heck is this? And now listen, this is going to sound sacrilegious. It's not. Uh, the ability to make fun of ourselves is good. We have a Christian subculture, and it can get weird, right? So I flipped the book up, and I don't know why I went to this section. It was page 44. It was about prayer. And uh, I get to this section, and John Acuff, who is the, uh, the writer of the book, he says, people you might meet in a prayer circle. Now, I say this because praying out loud was new to all of us, but now we're so ingrained, this is going to make all the sense in the world, and people are going to come to your mind like this. He starts with the opener. You might think the closer is one with all the power, but don't be misled. The opener is in control. In addition to often choosing the closer, they set the tone for the entire prayer circle. If they go long, everybody goes long. If they make cute little jokes, everybody makes cute little jokes. More than that, they don't have to worry about the closer or fear someone else cutting them off. They can pray and then relax, it's over. Okay? Some of you are thinking, I know I'm the opener most of the time. Uh, I love this one. The almoster. It's probably where most of you are, right? The almoster is like, uh, uh, like they can't get it out because they're getting cut off or they want to pray but they're afraid. And so they just keep hearing them breathe through the whole prayer meeting. The rambler. Nobody here, just in Texas, right? Another name for the person is John Acuff. That's the author. He's making fun of himself. This is the person who sees the chance to pray in front of people as an open microphone, a chance to not so suddenly reference everything they've learned during their quiet time in one long rambling prayer that feels like a sermon, and we've all been there. The gunslinger. I love this one. The shot blocker. This one is rare, like seeing a unicorn, but it can happen. The entire circle knows that Mark is the wrong guy for Sue and can't resist jumping in after she prays. Here's how it goes. Sue, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to strengthen and bless my relationship with Mark. Shop blocker. Lord, please give Sue more patience. Help her to see with clarity. Help her not to rush into anything that goes against your will and your plan for her life. Now, I have had three times in my life where I have belly laughed for almost five minutes. And this is one of them when I read this. The closer. Closing a prayer circle is like being Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Although you get to determine when it ends, you also have to monitor the amount of quiet time that signifies everyone had their turn. Now here, here's where I belly laughed. Because what you don't want to happen, what the closer fears most, is the encoreist. <laughs> this is when everybody knows it's over. Because the closer's on, and the encoreist swoops in with one final over. I gotta tell you, I laughed, belly laughed, on the floor for five minutes. Guys, we gotta make fun of ourselves. And, and do you know why all this is true? Personal opinion, I think prayer is very private. I really do. I think it's your relationship with God, my relationship with God. None of those are the same. I think we all come to God in different ways. And I think when we get into circles, it gets clunky somehow. And we have these learned traits, and it's far different what we know. Now, we should always pray publicly. We have prayer rooms. Listen, it's not one or the other. But what John is saying here is, look, 
when we come to God in prayer and, and he's, he brings this out beautifully, we have this confidence. Confidence is the key of life. Key of every relationship. It's the centerpiece of all that we know. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God because he who comes to God first has to believe that he is and then that he's a rewarder of those who, get this, diligently seek him. Did you grasp that? Those who diligently seek him. He's not a celestial vending machine in the sky. It's not name it and claim it. It's not formulas. Nor is he a genie in a bottle. You know, we don't throw one north when we're in trouble. That's not prayer. Prayer is a deep, abiding confidence that you know God and he knows you. That you know that two sparrows can't fall to the ground without his knowledge. How much more does he love you? How much more is your, every hair on your head numbered? Um, of those that diligently seek him. Now, this answers one of our questions, right? Why do I pray if God already knows what I'm going to pray about? Answer, because like every other relationship, God longs to be pursued. Uh, theologians call this the hiddenness of God. Why does God look absent? Why does he feel silent? Because he longs to be pursued. Every relationship, uh, people long to be pursued. That's why we look at text messages. That's why we want initiation. We all, want, we all have a longing to know and be known, to love and be loved. There's something innate. We want to be invited. We want initiation, and God is no different. Uh, every year we have an Easter egg hunt here. And... Let's be honest, adults, don't you want in when you see an Easter egg hunt? Like, I know I do. I'm like, geez, how do I get into this? Like, not only the prize, the hunt, right? But for our toddlers downstairs, I'm always amazed how they do this, or we do it outside, it's on the grass. They just put them on the ground. Now, I know why, because the kid has to see, he could barely go get it, right? Who in the world would want to be in an Easter egg hunt as an adult where somebody just put them on the ground, right? Who would want to go fishing where the fish jumped in your boat? Who would want to go hunting where the deer were all over the woods like a petting zoo, right? Life is about pursuit, and God wants to be pursued. David said, as the deer panteth after the waters, so my soul long after, after thee. Uh, and, and those weren't streams and rivers and lakes. They were wadis. They were natural dry beds that when the latter rains came would fill. And those deer, those conies in Israel had to go find that water. And David said, knowing God is a lifelong pursuit, it's, it's a long relationship where we begin to understand who he is and, and, and his actions in our life. Malcolm Mugridge once remarked that every happening, great and small, is a parable where God speaks to us and get this, the art of the Christian life is to get the message. Now, I know God speaks in his word predominantly. And yet there's a still small voice. There's whispers of the spirit. Uh, there's, you know, we have ears to hear now. There's all, but I'm, I'm always amazed at this, that God speaks. The question is, are we listening? John says, this is the confidence we have in him. Not that he says yes to everything. He hears us. That's all I want to know. God, do you hear me? Do you know what's going on in my little world? And th this is so important because you look at Moses, right? Moses leads all these people out of Egypt, out of bondage. And it's one miracle after another, right? Because it's by God's mighty hand. You know what the greatest miracle of the whole Exodus story is? It's not to me the burning bush. It's that Moses turned aside to even consider the burning bush. People ask me, Pastor Bob, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? 
I'm like, you know what? I can't quantify it. I do my due diligence. I do all my work. I study, etc. But at the end of the day, sermons prepare me. I'm just like you. I'm a Christian. I'm walking with God. I'm working out my salvation. God does things in my life like he does in your life. And they're preparing me. They're signposts along the way, as Lewis said. Dallas Willard said, and I firmly believe it, the great omission of Christianity, even among God's people, is that they're not pursuing him. Dallas Willard said most problems in our contemporary churches could be explained and solved by the fact that most Christians have really never decided to follow Christ. Now, I know that's slamming, but it's probably true. We know Jesus is Savior. We might know something about the Bible, but like the rich young ruler, we never laid it all down. That's what salvation is. Lord, you take over the wheel. I trust you more with my life than my plans. And the rest of it is following him. Now, here's where God's a bad marketer, okay? He's not really a great marketer. Like, if you wanted more people in the faith, you wouldn't put things in the Bible that he puts in the Bible. Like Abraham, right? Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to be this great nation. You're going to be this great man. People are going to revere you. You know, why does God have to interject the lying, the descent into Egypt, all of Abraham's failings. God's a bad marketer of his people, seemingly. And yet John says we have this confidence if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now everybody wants to know, what's the will of God? Let's stay with this. He hears us. Again, from Adam to Abraham to the last apostle, he hears us. Sizzling summer, we had five kids that we interviewed early that got baptized. And we're really take our time with kids because they can get caught up in a moment. It's a hot night. There's a pool. Everybody else is doing it. So we want to make sure it's legit. And I got to tell you, these five kids, every one of them, I got down on my knee and said, tell me why you want to be baptized. They all said, I love Jesus, etc." And then they all ended by saying, God told me. And that's all I need to hear. Uh, my daughter got baptized at six. My other daughter, I think, at five or six. Um, hearing the voice of God. It's not churchianity. It's not Christianity. That's what Eli was teaching a young Samuel who would be the first prophet. It's what Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They have spiritual ears. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Um, Hebrews opens up by saying, God who spoke to the prophets, uh, to the fathers through the prophets in these last days, is speaking through his son. So, do you hear the voice of God? We have this strong confidence that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know we have our petitions. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna get to this in a minute. It's not always yes. Again, what is the will of God? Well, the will of God can be discerned, right? We know it's God's will that none would perish, but all come to eternal life, so you can pray for people. We know it's God's will, Romans 12, that we become living sacrifices. That's what marriage is. It's what raising kids is. It's what relationships. You know, we can pray all these things. It's God's will that we conform to Christ's image, that we be holy and blameless. And we, we can go on and on with his will. What we don't want to get into is when bad things happen, we say, oh, that was the will of God. We don't want to speak for God in that way. The will of God can be discerned, I think, most of the time. I'm going to quote Mark Batterson in a minute. Most of us don't know where God is leading at any given time. Abraham certainly didn't. Uh, many of the great men of God. We know that God is righteous, fair, holy. 
John, seven times in two verses, we know that we know that we know. Now, knowing is intimacy, right? So let me take you way back before Genesis. It's not in your Bible this way, but it is uh, as it happened. The book of Job predates Genesis. There's no Israel, there's no commandments, there's no sacrificial system. And yet Job is a man that understands sacrifice. He learned it from Adam, certainly it was passed down. He is the most righteous man in the East. We learn later when he argues with his friends, he was benevolent, he was a man of mercy and justice. He cared for widows and orphans. And we all know in the land of Uz, terrible things happened to this righteous man. He lost everything to the point where his wife said, curse God and die. Don't make fun of her, she lost everything too, okay? His friends kind of had the karma theology, right? Job, come clean, you must have done something wrong. Because that's the way of the world. It's not the way of grace, but that's the way of the world. And Job is adamant that he's done nothing wrong. And he goes through all this turmoil, begins to argue with God. God speaks to him about creation. We have more in Job about creation than in Genesis. And Job comes out the other side. And you know what he says? I know you all know it. He uses the word no. I know that my Redeemer lives. Think about that. He didn't say... I know God exists intellectually. And listen, I'm intellectual. I quote very smart people. But at the end of the day, listen to what Job said. I know that my Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer? There's not even a law yet. There's not even a sacrificial system. Job knew to the core of his being. He was was fully a depraved man, just like you and me. Why do we have these wicked thoughts? Why why do we long for meaning and purpose in life? The animals who have kind of a soulish realm, yes, your dog loves you a little bit, not as much as you think. (laughs) But we who are made in the image of God, why do we think this way? Why does there have to be meaning? Why does there have to be purpose? Why do I think the things I don't want to think and don't act on the things I know that are true? Job said, because I know now my Redeemer lives, and I will see him on the last day in my flesh. It's before Genesis. I will see God. I will see him face to face. Up until this time, I have heard of you through the hearing of the ear, and now I have seen you face to face. And Job never saw God. But he saw with spiritual eyes. He saw what John saw. Job had this strong confidence. Paul had it in Romans 8 when he said, there's nothing that will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not famine or sword or any of those things. It's weird. When I walk around Delaware County, when I do my business, I run into a church person every day, sometimes two. Now when I'm in Ocean City, that happens because I preach at Coastal. It's weird. And uh, so yesterday I did a wedding on the beach. Known this family for a long time, beautiful time. Before I got there, I was in ShopRite buying something and saw a guy from Coastal. And he was here Wednesday night. We were talking about all the baptisms and Matt Mayer's story. Matt Mayer, if you weren't here, did five years for vehicular homicide. He was a pro soccer player. This guy said, I did 15. I was in prison. And then we just sat there and reminisced about He's been out of prison 20 years. I've been a Christian for 37 years. And we were just talking about, for young Christians, they, they just don't have the length of time to see that God can be trusted. They don't have the strong confidence yet. Yes, God's working in their life, but it just builds over time. And that's why Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God can be trusted. 
2,000 years, the church, still here, still worshiping. All because Jesus said, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's childlike, it's simple, it's unpretentious, anyone can pray it. It talks about the day at hand, it talks about the future. It talks about God's will. I leave Tuesday for a leadership conference. I like to call it a bragging on God conference. Speakers and leaders come from around the world, and I mean around the world, there's 118 countries present. They show videos, they give talks of things that would blow your mind of what God's doing. And all you do is clap and cry. That's about all you do. Again, I call it the Bragging on God Conference because it, it, it's, see, we can get so inoculated to our little world. Isn't that true? And on the East Coast, we're really parochial, right? Like, the people that drive this way to go to Whole Foods won't go that way to go to the fresh market. Like, nobody lives like that. My dad lives in Scottsdale, and I get to travel. Nobody lives the way we do. We, we just stay in neighborhoods, and we won't go here or there. We're, we're provincial and parochial, right? But, but the world is big, and God is on the move, and he's doing things that would blow your mind. And the reason I bring this up is because Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. When I think about God's kingdom, yeah, I have needs, but they kind of go to the back burner. I feel more alive and more excited when I know I'm tracking with where God is moving. That's why it says, seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. Everything's going to be added to you. He knows you need a roof over your head and gas in your car, etc., etc. Thy will be done. Give us this day. This is the only day we have, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. I was listening to Henry Cloud this week. I love Henry. He wrote Boundaries, some other books. Henry is a licensed psychologist, PhD, one of the smartest guys I've ever listened to. Uh, knows the human brain and wiring and also has a master's in divinity in the Bible. And his story really is, you know, I studied all of this, so I know the wiring of the human body, etc. And then I became a Christian, and I studied the Bible, and it just told me exactly what I learned here and told me more about the human condition. So what's really cool about Henry is he could tell you about anxiety and tell you how the brain functions, then he can go over here and tell you, this is what the Bible says, and it, it matches. And Henry says that whenever we get in the hard times, which we all face, maybe you're going through one now, we do two things. A, we run the isolation, which is always bad. I was talking to a man in the cafe, sitting alone. I sat down with him and said, what's going on? He said, my wife cheated on me. And like you rebuild a bathroom, I'm trying to rebuild my life. And he said, you know, for a year I didn't even go to church. And we kind of talked about this. And I said, geez, you know, the Bible says you move to isolation. That's where the devil can get you. The other thing is we try and act. We try and act, act real hard. Like, let, let me clean all this up. And yet the Bible tells us that there is a God who is always there. That he can be trusted. That what we're looking at makes no sense in the world. Why me, God? Sometimes suffering drives people to this place. But what they need to know is God suffered. And when you, when you, when you put all that together you kind of go the long haul. You have this strong confidence. So I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that I know where every book is on my bookshelf. So in different times, whether it's hard times or good times, I just 
picked books off that I remember spoke to me well. And uh, you guys like Mark Batterson. We have a section of his, and you guys buy all his books. But the book I really like about from Mark, and I've had coffee with Mark, and try and get him here, he won't come. But uh, my favorite book is what he wrote about the Holy Spirit called The Wild Goose. It's the Celtic name for the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark says that, like a wild goose, the Spirit of God cannot be tracked or tamed. An element of danger and an air of unpredictability surround him. And while the name may sound a little sacrilegious at first earshot, I cannot think of a better description of what it's like to pursue the Spirit's leading through life than a wild goose chase. I think the Celtic Christians were on to something that institutional Christianity has missed out on. And I wonder if we've clipped the wings of the wild goose and settle for something less, much less than what God originally intended. I don't know a single Christ follower who hasn't gotten stressed out over trying to figure out the will of God. We want to solve the mystery of the will of God the way we solve a Sudoku or crossword puzzle, but in my experience, intellectual analysis usually results in spiritual paralysis. We try to make God fit within the confines of our cerebral cortex. We try to reduce the will of God to the logical limits of our left brain, but the will of God is neither logical nor linear. It is downright confusing and complicated. I think it's only fair that I give a wild goose warning at the outset of this book. Nothing is more unnerving or disorienting than passionately pursuing God, and the sooner we come to terms with that spiritual reality, the more we will enjoy the journey. Hebrews said they all left not knowing where they were going. And they were pursuing a God that sometimes would hide himself. But they had strong confidence. Where's your confidence this morning? Where's your trust? Where was your trust in 2008 when the economy collapsed? May have not hit you hard, but talk to people at Smith Barney and Morgan Stanley, people in New York and L.A. and Chicago. Talk to the millions who lost their homes and retirement plans, maybe to never get them back. I mean, God showed he could pull the rug out of our economy like that. He could pull the rug out on Job like that. In Revelation, he's going to make the climate change. He can do whatever he wants. He does not because of his grace and mercy. But there are times where he shows this is all an illusion. It's all built on shifting sand. And that's why when he spoke, he said, there's some of you that will follow my words and you'll build on the rock and some of you are on sand. There's a verse people love to quote, the truth will set you free. Not really. Truth won't set you free. Jesus said, if my words abide in you, and if I abide in you and you act on these things, then you will know the truth and then the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free is not a magic wand. What Jesus was saying is if you would grasp what I'm saying and then live according to it, you would see freedom come in almost every area of your life and out of your innermost being would come rivers of living water. So can I get practical with you guys for a minute? I want to share something we're doing. We have staff prayer on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock. And I took out an easel one day and I said, guys, we're going to pray for 30 students at Innovate Academy we're starting in the fall. Let me tell you why I chose that. Uh, when I was young, I read a book by a pastor in South Korea who already had the largest church in Korea. I think he has the largest church in the world now. 
Um, they were a series of house churches. And when he was getting started at 20 years old, he needed a bicycle to go from house to house to house to house to preach. And he prayed for a red bicycle. Do you know why? Because the idea was when he received the bicycle, if it was red, he would know it came from God because he was specific. I got to tell you, when I read that, it, it revolutionized my early Christianity. I prayed those kind of prayers. And then somewhere midstream for the next 15 to 20 years, I thought, well, that's presumptuous, right? Like, I'm going to ask God for a red bike. I'll just ask God for a bike or not even ask him. He already knows. Until I met Oscar Maru in Kenya. And I said, Oscar, tell me how Nairobi Chapel started. Very large, influential church. And he said, well, I had my education in India. I came back. I took over to Nairobi Chapel. The janitor made more than I did. We had five members. We were next door to Nairobi University. So I prayed, God, would you give me 18 college students? I will pour my life into them, teach God's word, and the rest is history. When Oscar said that, it reminded me of my early days. So our Christian school board got together and said, for this to financially wash out, we need 30 students. When we start praying, we had 11 as of last Tuesday, and I don't know what has happened since, we're up to 25. And I got to tell you, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray till five of nine the Tuesday we start. Because that's where God has us right now. Did you ever go to your dad for money? Ah, dad, uh, I need some money. What was always the next response? How much do you need? What if we said, I don't know, you should probably know, whatever you, no, we're like $35, $135, 1, right? Uh, another thing we're praying for uh, is a youth pastor and actually an executive pastor. First time we've ever gone on a search, we've hired everybody from within. We've interviewed four candidates so far, we're trying to make the right decision. My only prayer has been, God, that you would be in this. I don't even like the process, God, but if you would be in this. And then finally, we're praying for Greenhouse. This is a ministry John Clifford's going to start in Chester uh, that we'll be involved in for a long, long time, trying to see what God might do in a place that has been marginalized for a long time. And so this is why we're starting Tuesday Prayer. Uh, I witnessed this in New York, where obviously a much bigger city where people work shift work, uh, there's a church there that has Tuesday morning prayer. I thought, oh my gosh, we're already praying on Tuesdays in the afternoon as a staff. How about if we just pray with everybody? And so we want to invite you. Our whole staff will be there. Maybe you can come once in a while. Maybe you want to start your day in prayer. Uh, we'll worship together. We'll love on each other. And we're just going to do this for a season and see what God does. We feel like we're entering a season of prayer because God has already done his trimming. And I say that with a smile. God has already cut back. Remember I talked about that in 1 John? He cuts back. He trims so the, so the resources can go to the healthy branches. And I really think God is about to do something. And we want to get ahead of this. We want to pray. We want to seek God. Uh, maybe in your own life this could spill over. Maybe some of you need to pray more specifically for what you're believing God for. Maybe you've lapsed in this area. Uh, one of the things that's been on my heart for three years, and I finally got my arms around it, I'm going to preach about it in January, is a swath of people in evangelicism are stuck. They really are. 
A lot of you are stuck. Stuck on your job, stuck in church, stuck with God. Some of you, and, and here's what I know. Here, here's, what, here's what it means to be stuck. You came out of Egypt, and you're not in the promised land. And the land in between, Sarah Groves said it's like pinching either way. You go back, that doesn't work. You go forward, that doesn't work. Um, the, the, the beginning of the journey is easy, and, and when you can see the finish line, it's easy. It's the middle, right? The land between is, is very difficult. And so Christians are stuck. You know what happens when you're stuck? You complain, you murmur. Michael Card wrote about the Exodus experience. He said they got tired of manna, Moses, and God. That gave me a lot of relief. They got tired of manna, okay. They got tired of God's messenger, Moses, okay. But they got tired of God. And so I finally got my arms around it. In January, I'm going to try and help a lot of you get unstuck and we'll see where that takes us. But prayer is the beginning of all this. And a strong confidence that God loves you, wants to do exceedingly above all you can ask or think. And I know if some of you are in a season that you don't enjoy, it doesn't look like that. But the whole Bible is a testament to his faithfulness.